Good evening, good afternoon, good day. This is Javelin on cover to cover, Javelin's Bistro. Welcome to the show. It's happy to be back here with you on this wonderful, lovely afternoon. Today's show. Frank Moore was an American performance artist, a shaman, a poet, an essayist, a painter, a musician, an internet television personality who experimented in art, performance, ritual, and shamanistic teaching since the late 1960s. His work is being archived at the Bancroft Library at UC Berkeley. Two of his oil paintings are part of the permanent collection at Bamfa. A collection of his work is being archived at Performance Esteban in Esteban, Turkey. Now, in 1997, Frank Moore was contacted by Russell Shuttleworth, a then University of California Berkeley graduate student, working on his doctoral dissertation. The thesis was a research study to help understand how men with moderate to severe cerebral palsy experienced and interpreted their intimacy and sexual relationships in the face of significant social and cultural barriers, or, as Frank called it, the sexual practices of Bay Area men with cerebral palsy. He wanted to interview Frank for, his, for this thesis. That interview quickly segued into 12 years of Russell interviewing Frank and Frank's life. Frank Moore died October 14, 2013. Frank Moore is being represented today by Linda Mack. Linda Mack was Frank's lover and partner in crime for almost 40 years. She is currently immersed in organizing Frank's archives and publishing his work. Linda is the co-producer of the web video series about Frank Moore's life, Let Me Be Frank. She is also the treasurer of Interrelations, the nonprofit church established by Frank in the late 1970s. Now she's joined here in the studio with me, Michael Labash, is a designer and artist who was in intimate relationship with Frank Moore and Linda Mack for 25 years. He was also Frank's tech guy. He designs all the Interrelations books and websites. Michael is co-producer and editor of the web series about Frank Moore's life, Let Me Be Frank. He is also on the board of Interrelations. Welcome to the show, Linda and Mikey. Thank you, Jovelyn. Thank you for being here. So So the title of the interviews, let's start with that. The titles of the interviews, the book that you have just published, How to Handle an Anthropologist, Interviews of Russell Shuttleworth and Frank Moore. How did that title come up for Frank? So they were, um, Russell was there, and they had decided um, to continue on their conversations, and we were videotaping the conversations in Frank's studio. And right as we start the video, Frank turns to the camera and says, how to handle an anthropologist. (laughs) (laughs) So... How could we pass that title up? And so what did, so it, as you've known him, Linda, what did that mean to him? Because it, it has a certain <clears throat> level of, a, of strength in that. Yes. Well, um, during the course of the 12 years, 
Russell got more and more involved in our activities and dropped this this cover of being the anthropologist. And so at some point, Frank found out he had a blues music collection and suggested that he be a DJ on Frank's internet station, Love Underground Visionary Revolution. So Russell turns into Dr. Groove and starts talking like, uh, what's the guy's name? The Wolfman Jack. Wolfman Jack. And he does this show. And then he finds out he plays a blues harp. And he said, you should be in my band, the Chirotic All-Stars. So there's Russell shirtless playing a blues harp in Frank's jamming band for years. And so he handled the anthropologist by as as you know making the anthropologist part of his study. Part of his study. Tell us about Frank Moore, cerebral palsy. How did that work <clears throat> itself in his life in regards how he navigated the world uh, <clears throat> from from his parents' point of view when he was born, and how he merged into becoming more solid in his own identity. Yes. When Frank was born, the doctor, he was, his father was military, so he grew up all over the world and on military bases. Mm -hmm. When he was born, the doctors told his mom and dad that he had no intelligence, no IQ, and he was best put in an institution. And Frank's mom, Connie, said, that doesn't match what I see in Frank's eyes. And so she fought the doctor and the whole power structure for Frank's entire childhood because, as Frank said, every step of the way, she had a battle. And um, so he grew up knowing that he could have been in an institution, but he wasn't. And um, Frank was one of the first um, mainstreamed disabled people. Um, so he was at the the beginning of disabled kids being in classrooms with other kids. And I found a quote from Frank that um, I kind of wanted to read to you about that. He said, um, my, my art is rooted in breaking out of isolation. Until I was 17, I did not have any way to communicate except through my family members. For a couple of my teenage years, I was very hard of hearing. My hearing cleared up. I invented my head pornea when I was 17. My communication isolation was then dispelled. But it took me another 10 years to shake off the isolation caused by my attitudes and self-image. This early isolation allowed me to observe life and people as an outsider. I always wanted to break physical, emotional, and spiritual isolation, first for myself and then for other people. And he shows throughout the interviews, uh, one of the things that I read in the interviews that he had was that it was important for him to have intimate relationships with people after he discovered his own voice, that he had a voice and wanted to break out of that isolation, that he also felt that that was a part of of the core of what society should be engaged in with one another through all levels, to be intimate with one another, however we define intimacy. Absolutely. And um, there were stages of that because he talked about his body image. Like once he broke the isolation of communication, he still had the body image that the culture laid on him. And 
at a certain point, he realized that wasn't working for him, and he didn't want to um, go through his whole life and rob himself and everybody of like who he was by thinking that buying into that. So one day he said, I just decided to think I was beautiful and I didn't tell anybody. And within a day, people started saying, Frank, you look really good. What happened? So he said I was faking it. But at a certain point, I forgot I was faking it. And it became how he saw himself. So that broke him out of that, that level of isolation. And then, um, that opened the way for him to have physical relationships, um, and he ended up marrying Debbie. And um, but at that point, he starts to see that um, that society needs to break out of the isolation. It's not just him. That it, and so I had another quote because he said, "I became sucked into performance, not to tell stories." not to paint pictures for others to look at, not even to reveal something about myself or about the state of things, and certainly not for fame or fortune. It was simply the best way that I saw to create the intimate community which I as a person needed and that I thought society needed as an alternative to the personal isolation. Do you think that, Linda, in terms of his need for intimacy, do you think that that he would have had that had he not had been challenged with at first what he thought was an ugly body experience or the rejection of outside? Was his was that more his soul's thinking of intimacy when as you've had dialogue with him well, over he the always year? said that he was lucky to be born into exactly. the body. Right. It's the way he saw it, you know. He said, I'm lucky to be born into this body. Most mm-hmm. people aren't don't have it as easy as me because he was always a misfit, so he never had to try to do anything right. He never had to... He could. That's what he said. I never had to try to do anything right, and so, most people don't have that, so they're always trying to do it right. right. He had freedom. He, that's the way he saw it. And he says also in the interviews that, that at one point he says he always had a good inward self image. Yes, yes, it, that's Mikey, right. Did, did jump in here. Did you? When, when? How did you first experience him when you first met Frank? <laughs> um, I was in a band. Um, and it was in the late 80s. I, I was, the band turned into Counting Crows, but they we weren't were called that We were managed by Bill time. Graham Presents, and you were on a fast track to fame. But I was really not satisfied with the direction things were going. I, I was looking for a like, family and community situation. That's what I thought I was creating, but it wasn't that. And um, I met one of Frank's students at one of the shows. She came to see our band, and... Um, we got together afterwards. She gave me some of the writings that Frank had written, and I thought, this guy's got, you know, it was like everything that I had thought or had in my head that I never talked to people about, he'd already figured out and written down. So I came to one of his performances and just kind of sat there with my mouth open, looking at all these people writhing around with smoke and music and naked people, and I just thought, this guy knows how to have a good time with his art. <laughs> so... Mikey, give us a, a me a snapshot, and of course, everyone listening, <laughs> a snapshot of, of what was like one thought that you can remember that was in your head 
thoughts you had or one thought that by the time you witnessed Frank, you realized he was saying out loud, living out loud, what you were experiencing but hadn't told anyone? Um, it, was, it was more just the way that life worked. I don't know that I could grab onto like an actual thought, <laughs> but the um, it was really just right like the under, it was like I I talked about I felt like when I created music it was like an act of magic it was like I wasn't like it wasn't me creating it was like I was channeling things through me I was grabbing things out of the air and putting them together and and Frank had that in a much more concrete kind of um, so that was just like on that level of like creating like things or you know kind of channeling beautiful things or but um when i first went to one of his performance like one of his like performances where he he did aeroplay for example that was where i thought you know that's where the intimacy came in where um he creates an environment where people can trust each other the strangers are like in a completely safe environment and people, like, shed their clothes and they interact with each other. And it's just, you know, like, my thought when I, for the first time, I said, wow, Frank, this is, if everybody did this, there would be no more war. You know, it would be just like, there, there's no way to, it's exactly what you're saying about being intimate with each other. Um, if you're If you're intimate with each other, then the conflict kind of, dissolves the investment the human investment when you're intimate with another and i believe that as well when you're intimate with another human being uh beings it's very difficult to switch to a a distraction from them and a, a harm to them and we talked about that before we went on the air some of the political discourse that's going on right now if communities of people were intimate with one another meaning knowing each other's stories and how we moved in the world and navigated in similar ways in some different ways uh, that's, that's specific to our culture if we knew those stories intimately and up close and personal mm-hmm. then it's very difficult to hear the other narratives that are pushed on people. That's right. That's Frank right. called that the com- Frank called that the combine plot. And he got that phrase from the Ken Kesey book, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, okay. where the main character, played by Jack Nicholson in the movie, said that there's this like system that every all the brains are hooked up to and it saps you when you do something that they don't want you to do. Mm-hmm. And that's where Frank got the phrase from. And he said that people are like have these like he he also talked at taboos like breaking taboos Taboos, that was a word that came up a lot taboos and magic both came up in some of the interviews that i noticed yes Yes. and he said um like when i first met him and we were doing a workshop he said break taboos i had no idea what he was talking about (laughs) they were so much part of who i was i couldn't see them as not me that like the things i had internalized that just knowing how to be and how to act and how to look at other people Mm. so for frank he saw all of that as like an overlay and what would be a taboo and i'm i'm i know i would say snapshot because i want people to be able to hear frank moore's work and story and be able to to hear a snapshot of the two snapshot from the two of you mm-hmm. that were deeply involved in every aspect of his life and your life, so they can also see where those snapshots exist in themselves. So let's deal with taboo. 
What was a taboo, Linda, that you had so had so embedded in your being that you realized they were so close to you, you they needed to be broke? Well, um, the one thing I, I that kind of carried through my whole life with Frank was we were always like meeting people. And um, Frank would always talk to people as if they were like what you might call their higher self, no matter how like unlikely that to me, I would think, oh my God, I can't believe he's saying that to that person. And I never once saw a person not respond in the way Frank was talking to them. And it was like an awesome thing to see. People were like so there if you went there. But it, to me, that was like a huge risk. I mean, he could have looked like they could get mad at him. They could like look down at him. I don't know all the different things. But he never, he always just went right there with anybody, like anybody that we encountered. Like, for example, we were being censored at a cafe and they called the police. And so now we're out on the street and the the cop is like arguing with us and Frank first insists that he talk to Frank rather than talking to more the able-bodied people. So right away the guy has to stand there and read Frank's board and Frank just starts talking to him like a person and just laying it out. And in the end the guy says, good luck Frank, go ahead and read your poems. The cop. You know, so he was always going for that in people. Let's talk about the board, His uh, Frank Moore's way of communication. Let's talk about that. Yes. So um, when Frank was a kid, they tried to get him to type because this is during the period when they didn't want you to look less normal. They wanted you to look more normal. So Frank had the idea of the pointer. Um, so he could type because he was falling behind in school and Frank was a real smart kid. And nobody would do it because they said it would just be too weird. And so he couldn't type. So we finally got a substitute teacher who just jerry-rigged something. Boom, Frank just started typing. His grades went way up. He wrote his first paper, One World Government, <laughs> which everybody freaked out about. Um, but then he created this board. And one of the things Russell points out, so the board had the alphabet and commonly used words and phrases. And it came to be like a normal thing that disabled people have. But when Frank came up with it, there wasn't, he was the one that came up with the idea as far as we know, at least in his world. And um, Russell said the one thing that's unique to Frank's board, even at this point, is that Frank had everything facing to the person in front of Frank. So Frank had to learn to read upside, upside down. down. And Russell said most nobody else does that. And so it's hard to like read the board or you have to stand next to the person. And you're, he said this way Frank has you right there. You know, you're right standing there. And it was just a way to facilitate communication and intimacy. So what was Frank Moore's sexual life like? What did he discover out in the world as a sexual being? Well, um, oh, there's so many stories. Mm -hmm. um, well, just like timeline, he, um, he marries Debbie at a community in Massachusetts that he hitchhiked to, to get to uh, alone. Um, and then um, when they leave the community, they hook up with Joanne 
and then Ray. So it was a four-person marriage relationship. So that was, you know, his sexuality right there. They had the two women, each had a child. And that's when I met Frank. And so um, when they moved to Berkeley with their nine-month-olds. And um, by that time, Frank was talking about intimacy, physical intimacy. He would say that um, when we're kids, kids can be very intimate. He said, but when you get to the point where sex is an option, you stop being physical with people. And that physical play, non-sexual physical play, is something you need to be healthy. And so for years, that was like when I met him in 75, he said that. And then around 10 years later, of him, you know, he would meet with people. He was always trying to kind of, we did workshops, and um, he introduced that concept into a group of people that developed around, he was doing relationship counseling toward the first part of the years I was with Frank. He said he was flexible, and at that time, we put a sign up for a workshop, and only one guy answered. He was a psychic teacher. And he had a bunch of students. He said, I don't want to do your workshop, Frank, but can I pay you to just get together and talk like we just did? So that started. And then all his students came. Then there were lots of workshops and a community form. But within that community, that physical freedom existed. And so within that community, we were all very physical, but we didn't only married people within the community had actual intercourse. But Frank... Um, but the, there was a physical freedom. There were no taboo areas. We just had, it was so free. And um, it was only many years into it, like five, six years into it, there was a point at which, um, and Frank talks about all this in the book in detail, where we started thinking, well, what's the difference between what we have in a married couple? And so we introduced the idea of, of us being able to have sex with each other, and the group fell apart. And Frank realized that sex has to do with like a bonding, that um, like a relationship that's bonded and committed, and and the the physical play that we all had. Um, even though we were all together, we had companies, we were living in houses, it didn't translate to that. It, I think people started getting jealous. There was just all this crap that started coming up and the group fell apart. But into the mid-80s, Frank started um, kind of in frustration because... At that point, when we would meet with people, a lot of it was like, oh, you're just sleazy. You're just saying you want to play in this non-sexual way so you can get people naked and play with you. And it was like, he, so he started thinking, if you use sexual words for non-sexual play, words have power and it has a sexual connotation. I have to come up with a word. And so one day we're walking home from the, we were doing a UC Berkeley series. We did for three and a half years, twice a month. And um, he said, aeroplay. I said, what? So he said, that's the word, E-R-O-P-L-A-Y. And that opened things up. Then he started writing about what aeroplay is. So Frank was very physical. He was always looking to like play and be physical with people. 
I mean, there's so much. I mean, like, he would laugh and say he got away with a lot because he was spastic. So he'd, like, you know, do this, and he'd be all over somebody, and nobody would get mad because it's like, oh, he can't help himself. So, I mean, he, he liked physical. He liked being physical with people, and he explored that. Mikey, how... After spending time with coming into Frank Moore's world and developing your relationship with him, how did he impact you as a human being? In just exploring and reading the interviews, he changed a lot of people. How did he change you? Um, Or add to you? Well, he I mean, really, he gave me a life I never knew I thought I'd ever have. Like, I had no clue how to be involved in a relationship. I went to school in Australia, went to private boys' schools. Um, like, just relationships were just disasters up until that. So Frank and Linda just kind of took me in, and um, I just learned from them how to, like, live. Like, every Frank was involved in, like, every aspect of... Um, my life just like uh, and it's hard to even talk about it as like they're not like it's not like a separate thing it was um it sounds like, like you like who you are because of frank yeah he, it, what frank did was he stripped away all the crap you have about yourself all the self-image that's kind of piled on you from the way people see you or tell you what you're supposed to be and what you are he gets rid of all of that and then you're just there kind of vulnerable to and just, and then there's so much freedom in that because at that point you you you're you're free to just go with who you are. It reminds me of one of the interviews. In the interview, he talks about a woman that he was staying with at, at one of the group spaces, and she she was losing her hair and she was weeping, and he showed her a picture of a woman all dialed up, and it changed things for her. In that she realized that that picture, my interpretation, was not the image that she necessarily would find as beautiful per se, but to just change what she was weeping over to embrace who she was in that very moment. And he had the instincts to do that. Absolutely. He called the painting Vanity. And that's Louise, and she to this day tells that story. She's <laughs> like in her 80s. And where could we, story. in the last few minutes, first of all, tell us where, I know that fan had a, a, a Frank had a large fan base. Where can people who are being introduced to this conversation uh, between the three of us, between the four of us, in terms of Frank's right. <laughs> right. Where could they find the work? And where can they get this book, uh, How to Handle an Anthropologist? Yes, um, the book um, is in, you can buy it online on Amazon and, and all the instructions are on our website, but it's all over locally in San Francisco in the Bay Area. Um, the, all the local independent bookstores, Pegasus, Dog-Eared, Bound Together, just, you know, call your local independent bookstore. Um, to find out about Frankie, has a huge website. It's E-R-O-P-L-A-Y, aeroplay.com. And um, you will get lost in it. and Don't be overwhelmed. <laughs> just like there's a site map and just find the sections you want to explore. There's a whole section of Frank's writings, and um, 
this morning, just as we're leaving the house, we found out that his Vimeo account that has 700 plus videos got shut down. I know. I did gonna, you know about yeah, that? Yeah, I did. I did. How did you know? I found out today because I kept trying to go on to continue <sighs> what I was doing. It was all shut down. <laughs> I could so there's not some believe it. Was, it's, and we haven't even gotten to that yes. in the last minute. I want to yes. say to our listening audience, uh, Mikey and Linda and I will be doing some recordings. I want to break the sections down to talk more because a lot of what Frank Moore was talking about is very relevant right now. And I think uh, human intimacy is incredibly important, the way he approaches performance art and, and its definition. So I'm going to break it into segments, and they are willing to come back and play with me. You bet. <laughs> <laughs> and so there will be more cover to cover, and I may even run over to Women's Magazine to have uh, Linda come over. In the meantime, uh, I want to appreciate you both for coming and looking in my eyes and being mm. intimate in this time. Javelin, it's <laughs> been a real pleasure. <laughs> real pleasure. Absolutely. Thank <laughs> you, and we will talk soon. Okay. All right, everybody. I've been Javelin, host of Cover to Cover and Javelin's Bistro, and I will see you sometime in the world. Have a wonderful, wonderful day. Director Spike Lee's iconic movie, Do the Right Thing, turns 30 this year. And we're celebrating this classic on our next movie matinee, Saturday, August 24th at 3 p.m. at the New Parkway Theater. Lee's powerful portrait of urban racial tensions on the hottest day of the year on a street in the Bedford-Stuyvesant section of Brooklyn sparked controversy while earning popular and critical praise. The film features a stellar cast, including Ruby Dee, Ossie Davis, Samuel L. Jackson, Rosie Perez, and John Turturro. So join us on Saturday, August 24th at 3 p.m. at the New Parkway Theater for a screening of the iconic Do the Right Thing with an after-movie discussion which will be led by yours truly, Greg Bridges. For more info, go to kpfa.org. This is a KPFA benefit. KPFA, KPFB, Berkeley, 88.1, KFCF in Fresno, 97.5.